Welcome to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. As a veteran senior pastor, Dr. Sullivan understands the importance of Bible teaching in the spiritual growth and development of God's people. Dr. Sullivan's method of teaching the Bible is to read and carefully explain each chapter and verse in clear and understandable terms so the student of the Bible gains the full understanding of God's Word. Now prepare yourself to learn and grow as Dr. Sullivan teaches through the Bible. Hello, welcome to another session of Teaching Through the Bible. I'm Dr. Kenneth Sullivan. Today we'll be teaching through the book of Galatians chapter 4, the epistle to Paul to the Galatians chapter 4. As usual, I'm reading in the New International Version of the Bible. So grab your Bible and let's get started. Now in chapter 4, Paul continues his discussion of justification by faith in Jesus Christ versus the law of Moses. He compares being under the law to being like children who were little more than slaves. Paul uses several different analogies and allegories um, to help the saints to understand the superiority of justification uh, through faith in Jesus Christ versus observance of the Mosaic law. Now I'm reading from Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 through 5. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now, the idea that Paul is seeking to convey here is the powerlessness and the helplessness of a young child as uh, a comparison to the immature state of the nation of Israel under the law. While Israel was under the law of Moses, they were like children waiting for the inheritance. And when Christ came, they were ready to grow up and receive the promised inheritance of full-grown sons. The law of Moses kept Israel under bondage to its rules and regulations until Christ came and freed them from their guardians and brought them under, under grace. Until Christ came, uh, they didn't enjoy the full rights and, and freedom and benefits of a full-grown heir. They had to, uh, to be kept by the strict rules and regulations of the, of the law. Uh, and the law was keeping them as a guardian, um, keeping them together until Christ came. All these rules and rituals contained in the law guarded and, and in a sense, tutored the nation of Israel until the time of their freedom and release from the law of, of, of Moses and a time which was predetermined by, uh, by God even before the foundation of the world. Find that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Now, when Paul speaks of the elements of spiritual or, or, or spiritual powers of this world, in verse 3, he mentions that. He's referring to the law. Before Christ came, those who were under the law were uh, also under slavery uh, and bondage to sin. As Paul explained in his epistle to the Romans, 
It was not until the commandments came that sin revived and he died, speaking of the uh, his time under the law. Uh, before the commandment came, he had the freedom to live as he wanted to. But when the uh, commandment came, uh, sin revived because he couldn't keep the commandment. And he says he died. He means in a spiritual sense. Now, the commandments were good and right and holy, but they demanded righteousness. But they did not provide the power to bring about that righteousness. So sin, through the knowledge of the commandments, held the Jews in bondage under law. They had the commandments that were under the law, but they didn't have the power to obey those commandments. That didn't come about until Jesus Christ died and rose again. Now, in his first epistle to the saints at Corinth, Paul made his readers aware of the fact that sin received this power from the law. He wrote these words, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, 1 Corinthians 15, 56. So those who were under the law were dead in trespasses and sin because now they knew that the things that they had been doing before were wrong, that they that God had commanded them against those things. They knew about it, but they couldn't do anything about it. They were slaves to sin. They, they could not overcome the sin in their lives because they lacked the power to do so. This slavery to sin made them keenly aware of, of their need for a savior. They needed someone to come and rescue them and help them out of their sin. Jesus is that savior. He is God in human flesh, who came into the world as a man and was born under the Mosaic law. And after fulfilling the law by obeying every one of his demands, he sacrificed his own life on the cross as a ransom for the sins of humanity and removed the law from us. Then he established a new covenant based only on the first two commandments. When we uh, when, when, uh, uh, asked which of the commandments were the greatest, Jesus replied in these words. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the other commandments and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. That's Matthew 22, 37 through 40 in the New Living Translation. Observance of these two commandments was the foundation and basis for all of the other con commandments contained in the law and the prophets. Jesus replaced the Mosaic law with the commandments to love. He said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That's John 13, 34. In Romans 13, Paul wrote these words. Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of the law. For the commandments say you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirement of God's law. That's Romans 13, 8 through 10 in the New Living Translation. Uh, through his death on the cross, Jesus purchased our freedom 
and delivered us from the law and sin. And he provided for our adoption into the family of God as sons of God. That's from Romans chapter 6, verse 18. Now I'm reading verses 6 through 7. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So we're not just children, we are heirs of God. The fact that the Gentiles were accepted as children of God through faith in Jesus Christ astounded the Jews. They had assumed that only Jewish people would be saved and would be accepted into God's kingdom and family. So Paul wanted these Gentile Christians, these Galatians and, and the other Gentiles to understand that God loved them every bit as much as he loved the Jews and that God had given the Holy Spirit as a witness to that fact. As Christians, we receive the Holy Spirit and, and we've been freed from the law of sin and death when we come to Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ and we share everything he owns, like a, uh, a child inherits from his parents or like a wife inherits from her husband. When she uh, marries a man, she inherits what he has. Paul described the Holy Spirit as the spirit of life in Christ Jesus and the law as the law of sin and death. Paul wrote, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free, had made me free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8 and 2, that's in the King James Version. The foolish Galatians were turning away from the freedom that the Holy Spirit had brought them and were instead turning to the law of sin and death. They had been freed, but they were seeking to be slaves again. And this bewildered Paul and, and frustrated him to no end. He, he would determine that he was going to set them free of the heresy that they'd fallen under. Now I'm reading verses 8 and 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Now, before the Gentiles before the non-Jewish people became Christians and came into the knowledge of God, they worshiped and served hundreds of idols, hundreds of false gods. They were slaves to something that, that didn't even exist, something that uh, really uh, had no life, no motion. The, the Bible calls them dumb idols. Their dark imag imagination had given rise to an elaborate system of worship and service to these dumb idols, 1 Corinthians 12 and 2. Uh, they're priests, the priests of these idols that, that supposedly represented these idols, pretended to speak on, on their behalf. They, they spoke uh, for these carved out statues, and, and they imposed their will upon the people. The people were under the slavery of ignorance and superstition, and they submitted themselves to these vanities. Some idol worship even included child sacrifices. They would sacrifice their children to these idols. There was one particular idol that, that was made out of metal and they would heat that thing up and, 
and 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 the uh, worshipers would come and bring their children and drop them into the red hot lap of this metal idol, and uh, and you could hear the screams all over the valley. Um, they would use drums to drown out the screams of the children. A terrible form of worship. These superstitions were driven by ignorance and false conclusions about unusual weather weather patterns and natural disasters and accidents and mishaps that took place. And any naturally event that caused harm, they would conclude that the gods were behind it. If there was a drought, the people would assume that someone had offended one of the gods. If a woman had a miscarriage, uh, someone had offended one of the gods. If the crops failed and, or were invest, in, 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 uh, infested with pests, Someone had offended one of the gods, and the gods had to be appeased. So this was a form of superstition that took a set of facts, maybe a natural catastrophe, uh, and jumped to a false conclusion. That's what superstition is. Uh, frankly, that's what evolution is. People uh, take a set of facts and jump to a false conclusion as to how things began. These people were enslaved by the fear of offending one of the gods. In addition to the slavery, to fear and superstition, some of the, uh, the temples had temple prostitutes who engaged uh, uh, in, uh, in temple sex and encouraged the people to indulge in sexual immorality. Uh, idol worship was certainly orchestrated by the influence of demonic forces as well as a way of enslaving people and driving them into gross darkness. Uh, an example of of a kind of demonic uh, supernatural power behind uh, um, idol worship and, and uh, demon worship is found in Acts chapter 16. Uh, it tells of a, an incident where a demon-possessed girl uh, uh, brought a great deal of money to her master. She was a slave girl who had um, a, a demon in her, and through the power of that uh, demonic spirit, she was able to tell fortunes. She was able to predict the future or, or, or um, something that she would do, soothsaying. She was a psychic. And people came to her for her wisdom and for her insight. She had a, a demonic power. She, she knew things that wasn't natural for a person to know. So uh, her masters were able to use her to make a great deal of money. Now, this woman followed Paul around, uh, proclaiming that they were the power of God. And, and uh, she was testifying on their behalf, but Paul didn't want a demon uh, testifying for him. Uh, the devil will try to attach itself to the real work of God in order to try to gain legitimacy so that he can uh, further deceive people. He will try to identify with the truth. Um, so that people will be drawn into it. So this is what this demon, uh, uh, demonic woman was doing. She was trying to attach herself to the good work that Paul was doing so that she could further deceive the people. And Paul was irritated and he turned around and he commanded that evil spirit to come out of her. He cast that, uh, that devil out of the girl and um, uh, her masters were very angry about that. They had Paul taken... Uh, before the magistrates and stripped down and beaten for the disturbance that he had caused in that city. Uh, but the point is that there was a demonic power behind this this uh, idol worship. There are sometimes supernatural powers that are associated with uh, idol worship. And, and uh, 
supernatural manifestations do occur. Uh, this slave girl knew things that was not humanly possible to know, and that's how she was able to um, gain money for her masters. Paul made it clear that demons were behind idol worship when he wrote these words. What I'm trying to say, uh, what am I trying to say? Am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I am saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. That's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20. And that's the New Living Translation that I just read to you. Demon-possessed and inspired priests would use the power of Satan to bewitch and seduce the idol worshipers into thinking that they were following the right path. Today, we have spiritualists, psychics, mediums, soothsayers, and those who dabble in the occult and deceive people. God commands us, do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists, for you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. That's found in Leviticus 19.31. Now I'm reading verses 10 through 11. You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. The Gentiles had gone from being enslaved by idol gods and demons to freedom in Christ, through Jesus Christ, faith in Christ, and now they were becoming enslaved again to the rules of the Mosaic law. They were allowing themselves to be seduced by these Judaizers that was telling them, you have to keep the law of Moses. It's not enough to just believe in Christ. You have to now also be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Well, there were hundreds of Jewish laws that governed the lives of the nation Israel and, and kept them in bondage. Um, and in addition to all these, law, uh, uh, these uh, laws, Jewish traditions were added on top of that. So man-made rules were added on top of the laws that God had given. And many of these were in direct contradiction to the laws of God. Jesus rebuked the Jewish scribes and Pharisees for, for imposing additional rules upon the people of Israel that nullified the laws of God. Uh, the law that God had put into place. And you can find that in Matthew chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 6, and Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. Now, Paul was deeply concerned that the hard labor he had invested in the Galatians was all for nothing because they were seeking salvation through the law and circumcision. They, they had slipped back away from God and slipped into to some other uh, form of religion and worship. And uh, Paul was concerned about that. They were being deceived. Now I'm reading verses 12 through 16. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing uh, of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? So Paul pleaded with the Galatian Christians to 
uh, give up observance of the law and, and circumcision, even pointing uh, to the fact that he had abandoned the law and chosen to live like Gentile, free from the Mosaic law. He urged them to follow his example of living, not by the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, relying on the Holy Spirit. Paul left the uh, he he left that old way of doing things, and he came uh, to serving God. And he wanted the the Galatians to to follow him as he followed Christ. He felt the pain of rejection and suspicion from the Galatians because their attitude toward him had changed since the Judaizers got hold of them and began to teach them and began to turn them uh, against Paul, their attitude changed. When he first arrived to preach uh, the gospel to them, he, he showed them great love and they showed him great love. Uh, he mentioned something about an illness uh, that, he, uh, that caused him to come to preach that somehow, and we don't know the details of that, but uh, in his weakness, the people received him and they loved him. Uh, Paul said that you would even have, if it were possible, plucked out your eyes and given them uh, to me. And, and some scholars suggest that this means that he had an eye disease or an eye problem. Uh, it could just have been symbolism. Or he could have been uh, just saying um, that you would have followed me. You would have followed me blindly. Um, we don't know what, exactly what the meaning of that was, but but the the point is that they loved Paul so much and they trusted him so much uh, that they were willing to follow him. Satan uses false teachers and even offended and disgruntled church members to turn the hearts of innocent and unsuspecting people uh, against their leaders. Jesus had to deal with these same satanic emissaries during the time of his ministry. They were used by Satan to oppose and, and distort his message and challenge his, his claim to be Messiah. And, and they turned the crowds against Jesus. With some of the harshest words Jesus ever spoke, he condemned these false religious leaders. Uh, he said, you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning and has always hated the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's John 8, 44, and I read that in the New Living Translation. In the end, those murderous, satanic um, spirits behind them compelled these false teachers to have their own Messiah crucified. Satan's strategy uh, is to lie about a leader and his message and to alienate the people from their leaders. Um, through lies and deception, he, he causes them to become bitter against their pastors and leaders. That's how he works. Um, if a pastor is, is making headway and helping people and really blessing people, is leading them down the right path, the enemy will try to get in and create some kind of an offense between that pastor and the people so that they will no longer receive from him. That's a way of short-circuiting their blessings. Um, and because they're confused and, and offended, people sometimes tend to reject the pastor and his message. When this occurs, the affected saints can no longer receive from that pastor, and consequently, they cease to develop, and their growth is stunted. Um, eventually, such people 
will leave the church and go and find another church, but it's just a matter of time before it happens all over again. Satan will bring a, an offense between them and the pastor. He will create a rift there. They will become resentful of their new pastor. Something will happen that they don't like, and then they will get up from there, and they'll go to another church, and the cycle continues and continues, and they continue downward. It's a downward spiral. They're getting worse and worse. This is exactly what Paul was experiencing with the Galatians. He had to somehow rescue them from the false teachers they had embraced. And he had to do it long distance using letters and uh, passionate prayers because he was away from them. Now I'm reading verses 17 through 20. Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. So Paul argued that these false teachers just wanted a trophy. Their goal was only to gain control of the minds of the people and win them as proselytes to Judaism. That's all they wanted. They didn't care about the people. They just wanted them to become uh, Judaizers like themselves. They wanted to convert them to the Jewish religion. The fact that the Galatians were observing the law was evidence that uh, Christ was not only uh, uh, undeveloped in them, um, but that they had fallen away. They drifted away from Christ. In frustration, Paul declared that he felt that he was going through the pain of bringing them um, into the world a second time because, because uh, it seemed from their actions like they had miscarried, that they weren't fully formed, that Christ wasn't fully formed and developed in them, or they would not have drifted away like that. Paul's tender and, and uh, sincere concern over the well-being of the Galatians is clearly evident in his letters. You can see it. Uh, he loved them so much, and he didn't want to be harsh with them, but he wanted to drive home the point. He wanted to convince them and compel them to turn away from this foolishness and turn back to Christ. So he tried to entreat them, and he tried to reason with them. Paul felt a, a greater disadvantage because he was away from them. He was physically away from them, uh, but the Judaizers were right there. Um, his only means of communicating was through letters, slow, slow snail mail that was so much slower than, than our snail mail today. He had to write letters and then wait for a response. He had to choose his words carefully. He wanted to, to make sure that he drove home the right message and, and make the right impression upon the Galatians because he was uh, earnest to get them free from the false teaching that had uh, ensnared them. Now, it's interesting to note that God used this dilemma of Paul, this problem in Paul's life with these Galatians, this real-life problem of addressing this, these false teachers and Judaizers. Um, God used it to move Paul to make one of his very best arguments in defense of the doctrine of justification by faith apart from works. He had to carefully think this thing through and prayerfully think it through. 
Now, from Paul's perspective, he's using all his intellectual prowess and skill and power of reasoning to expose these false teachers and to correct the thinking and actions of the Galatian Christians. But all along, this is from his perspective, but all along, God had a bigger and a, and a better plan in mind through Paul's letters. Think about it. God knew that this well-reasoned out letter would become part of New Testament scripture and that it would be heavily relied upon to counter false teachings that the church would encounter generation after generation. God knew that this letter would be read carefully and studied by millions upon millions of Christians. And it would help to clearly help us to clearly understand the do doctrine of salvation by uh, uh, grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from works. And so here I am, 2,000 years removed from Paul, uh, and, and teaching this letter and encouraging those of you who are listening. So God had a bigger plan. Uh, yes, Paul thought that he, he just had his mind on correcting these Galatians, but God had a plan on using these letters. He wanted Paul to meticulously write this so it would benefit the church for generations to come. God knew that this letter to the Galatians and the other uh, letters that Paul wrote would be used by the other churches, the, the other letters that Paul wrote and the other letters that the apostles wrote. We have letters from Peter and James and John uh, and Jude, and, and all of them are written to, uh, to bless us, to teach us, and, and we're able to uh, organize and administer the church and um, execute church government and do all of those things that God wants us to do through these letters. Every challenge that the apostles had to deal with in the early church was a challenge that would be common to the universal church throughout the ages. So uh, they were pioneers for us. The encouragement, the arguments, the corrective instructions, which were written, dictated by the apostles and, and then captured in the forms of letters to the churches were preserved as the basis for church doctrine for the rest of human history. Isn't that great? God used the difficulties faced by the apostles and the early church members to move them to write the Bible. And we all benefit from this today. Perhaps the, perhaps the difficulties that we're facing today are designed to move us to some kind of action that will not only benefit us, but will may benefit future generations. So we have to think that uh, all things work together for good and to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. God is a master of bringing about multiple far-reaching outcomes from seemingly desperate situations. Joseph was sold as a, as a slave, but through his difficulties, uh, he saved his family. He saved the Egyptians. Uh, and through his life, we are blessed and we're encouraged. Mary suffered a great deal of humiliation for the sorted from that uh, gossip that people passed around about her being pregnant and not married. She went through all of that um, um, that humiliation and, and shame. And we read her story and we're blessed. Jesus was brutalized and, and crucified through his suffering and death. He rescued us and he rescued the whole world. So 
the trouble that we're currently facing, that that we finally uh, we we currently find ourselves struggling with, could turn out to a, to be a blessing to us and to be a blessing to others. Romans eight Romans eight twenty eight tells us that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. So we have to deal with our problems and suffering and hardships. Um, by following the teachings of scripture, but also thinking that God has a higher purpose uh, for this suffering that you're going through. Now I'm reading verses 21 and uh, through 26. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The, the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. So Paul presented an allegory uh, to help the Galatians understand the difference between the law of Moses and the grace of God, which comes by Christ. Now, an allegory is a story to help you understand something better. Abraham's two wives represent the two covenants, and their two sons represent the children born under those two covenants. God had promised Abraham a son by his barren wife, Sarah, and God waited until uh, Abraham was too old and Sarah was already uh, barren in the first place. And she was now barren and too old, a double whammy. Uh, uh, Sarah was too, too old for her and Abraham to have child together. Um, and so God waited so that the child of promise would be born miraculously. In unbelief, of course, you know this, may know the story that Sarah urged Abraham to take her young slave girl, Hagar, and have the promised child by her uh, to try to help God out, thinking maybe that's what God meant. Abraham and Hagar had a child, and, and they named him Ishmael. Now, God loved Ishmael, but he was not the son of promise, because God's intention was to have a miraculous son. He intentionally waited till Abraham was too old, and that Sarah was too old and barren, so that the child would be a miracle baby. Since Hagar was a slave, her child Ishmael was the son of a slave. And according to the, the code of Hammurabi, uh, which was the governing influence over the culture of Abraham's day, the child of a slave woman became a slave. Hagar represents Mount Sinai, where the law of Moses was first given to the people, and they were compelled to live by it. Paul uh, pointed out that the slave mother, Hagar, corresponds with the early Jerusalem, which is under bondage to the Mosaic law. Those who are under the law correspond to Ishmael, Hagar's slave son. Now, 14 years after Ishmael, uh, God fulfilled his promise and miraculously gave uh, Abraham and Sarah a son, and they named him Isaac, which means laughter. Paul explained, that free Sarah represents the new Jerusalem above, which is also free. Those who put their faith in Christ are the free children of Sarah and correspond 
to Isaac, the free son of promise who was born by miraculous means. Isaac represents the freedom and grace that God brought to his people through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the new covenant. The key word in, in Paul's allegory is the word free. Those who have turned from law to grace enjoy freedom from the works of the law. We have been miraculously born by the will of God and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We, like Isaac, are miracle children of promise. St. John put it this way, but as many as received him, to them gave he uh, power to become the sons of God. I want to read that again. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. That's John 1, 12 through 13 and 17. <clears throat> now, I read in the King James Version. Now, um, the covenant was established by Christ, of course. And, and now that the new covenant has been established, observance of the law of Moses in, is, a, is a human attempt to fulfill the promise of God. Now, just as God rejected Abraham and Hagar's human attempt to fulfill his promise of a son, he also rejects the works of the law as a means of obtaining righteousness. So uh, that's in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. So um, anyone trying to uh, receive justification, which are uh, trying to receive salvation by observing the law, or they're doing what uh, Abraham and Hagar did. They're trying to fulfill God's promise by human means, okay? God saved us miraculously through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for us. All we have to do is put our faith in him, and we have the promises of God. If we try to bring law in it, we're doing, making the same mistake that Abraham and Hagar made, and Sarah, because Sarah suggested it, um, when, when they got together and tried to produce the promised child. God rejected Ishmael as the child of the promise. And so God rejects anyone who tries to receive salvation by mixing law and grace. We Christians are free from the law to serve God under grace. We're symbolically the children of Sarah, who represents freedom and the new Jerusalem. Now I'm reading verse 27. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Sarah, the free woman who represents God's grace, was barren. However, God, through a miracle, fulfilled his promise and gave Sarah the promised child. Through Isaac, came many more de uh, descendants than Hagar was able, able to produce. One important point of this allegory is that God, through Jesus Christ, has brought more children into his family than was brought in under the Mosaic system, which Hagar represents. Now I'm reading verses 28 through 31. Now you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance 
with a free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Paul reminded the Galatians that they, like Isaac, were children of promise, not children of the flesh. They were not, they were the product of, of a miracle. And after Isaac was born to Sarah and Abraham, Ishmael became jealous of him and began to mock and persecute him. Paul continued his allegory by comparing Ishmael's persecution of Isaac to the way the unbelieving Jews persecuted the believers. When Sarah saw how Ishmael was treating her son Isaac, she commanded Abraham to get rid of uh, Ishmael and his mother Hagar. The trouble between the two women and their sons troubled Abraham and broke his heart. Um, but God told him to listen to his wife and send the slave child and his mother away. And uh, of course, Abraham obeyed God and sent them away. Now, God took care of Ishmael and his mother, uh, and he grew up and became a great leader uh, with many descendants. Ishmael became the father of the Arabs. Now, in Paul's allegory, Isaac represents Christians and Ishmael represents the Jews under the law. Ishmael was rejected because he was not the child of promise, but the result of human effort. God's rejection of Ishmael as the son of promise illustrates how he rejects the works of those who try to gain acceptance by the law of Moses or some other way other than faith in Jesus Christ. Now, God has established his own plan by which he has chosen to save us. We can't substitute some other means of approaching God and receiving salvation and expect him to accept it. He will reject it. Um, the Bible says this, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's John 14, 6, King James Version. Well, that brings us to the close of the uh, Galatians chapter 4. In our next teaching session, we will look at Galatians chapter 5. Now, much of what I shared with you today is from my commentary uh, on the book of Galatians, and you can order it from my website at EmergeCurriculum.com. And if you live in the Indianapolis area, I'd like to invite you to come visit us at New Direction Church, where my son, Kenneth Sullivan Jr., is the pastor. Our East Campus is located uh, on uh, 86th Street, 86th and Hawthorne Road, and our North Campus is at, at uh, I'm sorry, our East Campus is on 38th Street, uh, 38th and Hawthorne Road. And our North Campus is on East 86th Street and Hague Road. I'd love to see you at one of our services. Until next time, may God bless you. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. We hope this program has benefited you in your Christian walk. For a free download of this program and to browse Dr. Sullivan's books, videos, and audio titles, visit our website at EmergeCurriculum.com. Please tune into our next teaching session on Vision Stream Network or listen on demand from our podcast.